0: KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM, and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening, where we continue our reflections into Theology of the Body, and Christopher West's work fill these hearts. I am flying solo this evening. Hopefully, Chris and Derek will be back with me next week. So if you have any questions, comments, observations, once again, please do not hesitate to email me at jholl. JMJ at yahoo.com, or you can go to my website at joeholecraft.org, hit the contact link button there, and send your email or message on its way. Okay, so where were we at? We are in this last section titled Destiny, huh? And in this chapter titled Loving Love, we were looking at what mature love looks like, huh? That mature love is attracted not just by the sexual attributes or qualities of a person that light a spark in me. Attraction to such qualities can form the raw material of love, but if love stops merely at a person's pleasing and attractive qualities, a permanent shadow is going to be cast over the permanency of the relationship, huh? Why? Because a person's qualities change with time. Furthermore, as we talked about last week, qualities are repeatable, huh? Attractive qualities can always be found in others and sometimes to a more pleasing degree. Individual persons, however, are what? Unrepeatable. They can never be compared to, measured by, or replaced by another. This was the essence of what we talked about last week, huh? A love that hankers after what is merely pleasing and repeatable in a person will do just that. What? repeat itself with whoever possesses those pleasing qualities and in this case the inherent adventure of love the desire for expansion growth and new discoveries will lead a person to take his delight in wandering from person to person this is the tragedy of the hookup culture that is so rampant from one campus to the next on the other hand my dear friends love that reaches the unrepeatable mystery of the other person is a love that's truly that, unrepeatable, stable, sure. It's an inexhaustible treasure that can't possibly be found elsewhere. And in this case, love's inherent adventure finds its delight not in wandering from person to person, but my dear friends from wandering ever more deeply into the heart of the one and only beloved. And here is where we enter into that overarching truth about the nature of God who is love. God who is mystery. Remember what the word mystery means, huh? Coming from the Greek mysterion, it means the inexhaustible reality. God's love is inexhaustible. You can never exhaust his love. And by entering into a more intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, and the greatness of this love, we learn the language of love as inexhaustible, that love which pours itself out constantly. My dear friends, let's face it. (laughs) Life continually offers equally or more seductive possibilities of new sexual relationships, especially in today's world. If the person I quote-unquote love is only an instrument for my own pleasure, then cannot he or she easily be replaced? Huh? What is the inevitable result of this? But fear, anxiety, and those questions, huh? Am I truly loved? Will I be abandoned for another? The case is different when love reaches the value of the other person, then The other is loved, not merely for the pleasing qualities that he or she has, but for his or her own sake, for his or her true and unrepeatable value as a person, you see. Only then, only then, is the sexual relationship something more than selfishness. Only then is the sexual relationship based on something stable and lasting. This is the pearl of the wisdom and insight of St. John Paul II. When love stops at a person's pleasing repeatables, as Christopher West calls it, it's a case of the raw material of love failing to take shape in its finished form. Not that love is ever finished, per se, but stopping at the pleasing, repeatable stunts love's growth at the very start of what should be embraced as what, but the ongoing process of growth and maturation. And when love's growth is stunted, eros, that physical human love, degenerates quickly into what? Egoism, lust. Our hearts are overrun by it. The person who is the object of such lust gradually realizes the sentiment of the other person, saying what? You don't love me. You don't desire me. You desire only a means of gratification. Far from feeling loved and affirmed as a unique and unrepeatable person, those objectified by lust feel used and debased as what? A commodity, a replaceable commodity. And consequently, will live under the constant fear of one day being discarded for something or someone more pleasing. You know, Pope Francis has used a phrase a lot, and that phrase is throwaway culture. And he's just not talking about things. No, he's talking about persons. Is he talking about abortion? you better believe it, first and foremost. First and foremost. Is he talking about the poor? You better believe it. But he is also talking about any and every time we, you and I, discard someone as a means to an end, and that end our own gratification. Let us not participate in the throwaway culture by how we love or don't love our spouse's those closest to us. We don't want to be toyed with, my friends, huh? We long to be loved as we are for who we really are, and not just for whatever it is we have that may please someone else. Don't we all know, deep in our hearts, that we are never meant to be compared to another, measured against another, or replaced by someone else? This is what is so beautiful about who we are as created in the image and likeness of God. We are unique. We are unrepeatable, you see. Don't we long deep in our hearts to be loved in such a way that we are honored and recognized as indispensable, irreplaceable, simply, my friends, unrepeatable? And doesn't it pain our hearts grievously when others treat us merely as objects that can be disposed of and replaced. Huh? There's a a striking reflection here offered up by Christopher West, where he engages Toy Story 3. This is what Christopher West has to say. These universal truths of the heart were portrayed with remarkable and surprising insight in, of all films, Toy Story 3. Little Andy from the previous films isn't so little anymore. In fact, he's headed off to college, and he hasn't played with his toys for years. When the toys steal Andy's cell phone so that their old friend will have to open the toy chest so they can be seen, you can feel their yearning for love. Andy lifts Rex the dinosaur in order to retrieve his phone, and once the coast is clear, Rex exclaims with unbridled elation, He touched me! He touched me! There it is. The cry of the heart to be loved, to be touched. God bless him. Rex was starved for affection, West says. I knew then this movie had more to offer than mere entertainment. New to the series is Lotso the Bear, the self-appointed tyrant leader of all the toys at Sunnyside Daycare. In the course of the movie, we learn Lotso's tragic backstory. Lotso had been Daisy's most beloved toy. But when she lost him, her parents got her another bear, just like him. When Lotso found out he had been replaced, he snapped, becoming a quote-unquote monster inside. Part of Lotso's revenge for having been cast off and replaced is that if he can't be loved, he won't let anybody else be loved either. If he's replaceable, then everybody else is too. At one point, Lotso confronts Andy's favorite toy, Woody. You think you're a special cowboy? You're a piece of plastic. You were made to be thrown away. When the Ken doll is afraid he's going to lose Barbie, Lotto says, she's a Barbie doll, Ken. There's a hundred million just like her. Ken insists, not to me there's not. And Barbie sighs, knowing that Ken sees her as unrepeatable, irreplaceable. And Christopher West continues. (laughs) In the story, these toys aren't toys at all. They feel what we feel. They desire what we desire, love. That's why they're so relatable. The theme of Toy Story 3 is that being replaced and thrown away is the opposite of being loved. We all know that in our hearts. But sometimes we're acting out our own revenge on others for past hurts like Lotso. When Lotso seems to be having his way and Woody and his pals are doomed for the incinerator, Salvation arrives from above. In the end, Lotso pays the price for his madness, while love triumphs in the lies of the other toys. <laughs> West closes Deep Stuff for a Kids movie. You know, it's really interesting. What Christopher West does in this work is really what we all ought to do, huh? Watch these movies. Listen to a song appreciating the movie and song for what it is, yes, but also see it in another light, the light of Christian truth and faith, the light of good and evil. And when you do so, my friends, there is always insight to be gained. It's fascinating. Sometimes, unintentionally, they tell the Christian narrative uh, better than we do. (laughs) Anyhow, uh, Christopher West kind of wraps up this chapter with a kind of juxtaposition between lust and love, where we are made to see how lust is directed toward self gratification and love is directed toward self donation. How lust treats others as objects and love affirms others as subjects. How lust sees the body as something and love respects the body as someone. Lust sacrifices others for oneself, where love does what? Sacrifices oneself for others. Lust grasps at fleeting pleasures. Love yearns for eternal joy. Lust enslaves us. Love liberates us. Lust jealously possesses. Love confidently trusts. Lust manipulates and controls where love respects the other's freedom. Lust is aimed at any pleasing outlet. Love is reserved for only one. Lust ends where the pleasure ends, and love lasts through good times and bad. Lastly, lust makes us feel toyed with. Love makes us feel treasured. Amen. As we move into this last chapter of To Infinity Beyond, we are made to recall the importance of God first, Jesus first we are given our spouses as a special gift, an unrepeatable, irreplaceable gift that we are called to love to well, as the chapter is titled, to infinity and beyond. And as such, we are made to remember that our spouses are not the end in and of themselves. This is a great challenge that the Christian and Catholic faith proposes. Jesus must come first. This is really the overarching truth of this last chapter, because before we can even begin to serve other, most especially our spouses, we must first be in God. Before we can even begin to make Him known and how we love other, especially our spouses, we must first come to know Him. This is what lies at the center of our faith, and certainly this is what is at the heart of this last chapter. You see, I love my wife more than words can express, and I know she loves me. But the fact of the matter is, I can't possibly be her ultimate satisfaction, and she can't be mine. Why? Because sooner or later, we have to come to terms with the fact that nothing finite, nothing that belongs to this world, can satisfy the ache of Eros, Why? Because eros is a yearning for infinity, and we will never be content with anything less. Human love can be, and is designed to be, a beautiful sign or icon of infinite fulfillment. But if there's anything that human history has taught us, it is this. Experience attests that if we are expecting another human being to be our ultimate satisfaction— We are placing an unbearable burden on that person, and we have turned the icon into an idol. Only to the degree that we stop expecting others to be God for us are we free to love others as they really are, warts and all, right? Without demanding perfection of them. And this just isn't reduced to our spousal relationships, but our friendships, our children in any relationship, only to the degree that we are free from idolizing human love and other human beings are we also free to take our ache for perfect fulfillment to the one who can satisfy it. There's a wonderful truth that comes to us from the book of Job. You know, a lot of us talk about the patience of Job and how we can learn from the patience of Job. But I think there's another lesson, and maybe even a deeper lesson, to the story of Job. And it starts with an understanding of who he is. He is an orator. He inquires. He asks questions. And this is what you see throughout the book of Job. In the midst of all his suffering, he's constantly asking questions. And what is most striking to the story of Job is that God never answers his question. And yet, we read at the end of the story, he's satisfied. What is going on there? Huh? Oh, yes, we can learn from the patience of Job. But maybe the most important lesson from the story of Job is how he is satisfied, because God never answers his question. He is only satisfied when he's in God's presence. So he's inquiring, he's questioning, he's asking God all of these things, and God never responds. But yet he's satisfied. He is satisfied when he realizes he is in God's presence. He is satisfied not by what is finite, but by what is infinite. God's love. This is why, my dear friends, our ache, our desire, our yearning for God will never be ultimately satisfied by him answering this question or that question. No. If we want to be satisfied with and in God, we need to allow God's presence to overwhelm us. We just need to be in God's presence praying for that great gift of faith. This is why life only begins to make sense for Job, all of its joys and trials, when he's in God's presence. Only in God's presence do things begin to take proper perspective. And Christopher West notes here in this work, and I I love this uh, sentence, and when we start to allow our hearts to be dilated, stretched to their maximum capacity to the point that they are large enough and open enough to receive infinity, will we begin to be consumed by God. Hmm. Amen to that. Moving forward here in Christopher West's work, he has this subchapter titled, Impoverished Images of Heaven. Listen to what he has to say here. I guess you're all familiar with Billy Joel's song, Only the Good Die Young. It's a catchy tune, and I almost always find myself moving to the beat when it comes on my car radio. But have you ever listened to the lyrics? Especially those lyrics. They say there's a heaven for those who will wait. Some say it's better, but I say it ain't. Now, where does that come from, huh? I mean, Hollywood has the ability to, yes, portray heaven as something great and beautiful, but often as something bland, dry, very vanilla-like we can say, boring, I dare say. As Christopher West talks about this, the reason that the quote-unquote fast food gospel looks so attractive is precisely because it presents a convincing counterfeit of what we are really looking for. I mean, consider, the counterfeit million-dollar bill has the power to deceive us precisely because it looks like the real thing. So one could argue, if we can untwist the distortions of the fast food gospel, we will be able to rehabilitate and rediscover images of heavenly fulfillment that are actually worth waiting for, something that is lively and life-giving. A beauty that is so attractive, so alluring, that all you want to do is be in it. A song, so inspiring, that all you want to do is sing it. That's heaven, huh? You know, as we've talked about it before, the unbridled indulgence in sex and alcohol are arguably the two most addictive pleasures offered by the fast food gospel. There's a reason for that. The joining of man and woman in one flesh and the joys of wine are two of the primary biblical images of what? Heaven. Heaven. I mean, we cannot forget that Christ's first miracle, as we've talked about in the past, was where but at a wedding feast, a celebration of two becoming one, where he enlivens the party with the best wine. And as we talked about it last week, 150 gallons of wine. I love this line from Christopher West, untwist the indulgences of the typical frat party, the abuse of sex and alcohol, and we find ourselves at the wedding feast of Cana, a true foreshadowing of heaven, where rightly directed eros provides, and this is Benedict 16th not just fleeting pleasure, but also a certain foretaste of the pinnacle of our existence, of that beatitude, blissful happiness, for which our whole being yearns. Amen. My dear friends, if there's an enemy who wants to keep us from heaven, there's one thing we know about him. He is a plagiarizer. He takes all the good things that belong to God, to Christ and his church, and what does he do? He puts his name on them, claiming them as if they belong to him if we are to recover more accurate images of heaven, it is imperative that we reclaim what the enemy has plagiarized, what the enemy has hijacked. Sad thing is, if we tend toward the aforementioned starvation diet, we may be content to let the enemy have these pleasurable things, see nothing really good in them that needs to be reclaimed, huh? Huh? Indeed, there are entire camps of believers whose basic approach to the pleasurable things of this world, like sex and alcohol, is one of fundamental suspicion. True enough, things like sex and alcohol are often terribly abused, and whenever good things are abused, pain and despair result. But we mustn't go to the other extreme and blame the good things God has made for our abuse of them. This is a key lesson learned from theology of the body, and certainly one that St. John Paul II wants us to understand. Why? Because God wants to teach us how to enjoy these gifts and take pleasure in them as he intended. The approach to pleasure, in fact, is one of the distinctive marks of the three gospels discussed in this book. Each gospel has its own, as Christopher West puts it, pleasure principle, the starvation diet. Pleasure is an evil to reject. Fast food. Pleasure is an idol to indulge. The banquet gospel. Pleasure is an icon that's meant to point to heaven. My dear friends, when the world's pleasures are rightly ordered and lifted up or made sublime, Then they can be seen for what they are, four shadows of heavenly bliss. Then we can rejoice wholeheartedly with one St. Bridget of Ireland in her description of heaven as a great lake of beer. (laughs) Think about that. That's St. Bridget of Ireland, a great lake of beer, a great lake of beer into which we all dive with holy delight. Then we can get beyond... All of that squeamishness and take great joy in the prophet Isaiah's description of heaven as sucking deeply from the abundant breast of the new Jerusalem. Such a beautiful image given to us from the book of Isaiah. As Isaiah chapter 66, verses 11 to 12, talks about the new Jerusalem and us finding comfort in the overflow of her milk. Then we can get beyond prudishness and joyfully recognize the erotic passion of the lovers, and the song of songs as an image of divine human nuptials that await us in heaven. My dear friends, there is a lot of, some would say, edgy or even provocative images in the Old and also the New Testament. But when we put sacred scripture in its proper context, the lover and the loved, we will begin to understand these images as we ought, and moreover, have a deeper sense of purpose in who we are as created in the image of likeness of God and how we are called to love, not only our spouses, certainly our spouses, yes, but also all those who we encounter. Because in the end, my friends, to talk about theology of the body is to talk about the way in which we are called to love in light of the body, which is always other first. Amen. Let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we just give you special thanks and praise for the gift of Theology of the Body and the wonderful insights to be gained from it. Certainly, we are thanksgiving for uh, this work, Fill These Hearts, and we just ask that you would continue to uh, bless us and that you might be with us to not only better understand Theology of the Body, but apply it to our lives that indeed it might transform who we are and our relationship with you. We pray all these things through the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.